This episode is brought to you by Levo. Simple, potent, at-home herbal infusions at the push of a button. Learn more at levooil.com and feed your enthusiasm. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L dot com. This week on Meet and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your co-host, Ethan Frisch. And I'm your co-host, Valerie Lomas. And we're just going to dive right into today's interview. Uh, Yorm Akwaku is the host of Item 13, a fairly new podcast here on Heritage Radio Network, but with a, a long history prior to joining. And we're really excited to welcome her to the HRN family and to get to talk to her a little bit today. Yorm, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to to dive in here. So so let's start with uh, item thirteen. What is the podcast? How did you how did you wind up starting it? And uh, what what kinds of subjects do you cover? Cool. So item thirteen is a podcast that highlights the stories of African food entrepreneurs around the world. Um, I started it about three years ago as an offshoot of a food media platform that I ran, Essence Thirteen. Um, just because through my work with Essence 13, I, I just came to realize that there was not a lot of people sh- sort of sharing the true stories of these of of these trailblazers, as I called, I, I like to call them. Um, there's a lot of people in the African food space that are doing incredibly interesting, powerful things, I think, um, and don't have a platform to be able to share share their stories. So I thought I would create this. Um, and I did do it right around the time that I myself was getting into podcasts. And so one of the podcasts I listened to quite a bit was How I Built This. And I thought, oh, this is cool. Like, I, if we could have a version of this for the African food entrepreneurs that I tend to work with or engage with, that would be awesome. And so that was the, the root of item 13. And because people ask me this a lot, I'm going to answer it now. Item 13 is slang for... Um, Ghanaian food, Ghanaian food or, or snacks. Um, and it originates from when we were colonized by the British. Um, this is a story my parents, grandparents told me. So take it, take it as you will. Um, but they said that um, back in the day, the 13th item on a meeting agenda was, always used to be food. And so people would just say, you know, if they're going to a meeting or an event or a party or whatever, they would be like, oh, is there going to be item 13, meaning is there going to be food, or good food, uh, you know, at this event, et cetera. So that's why I call my podcast item 13. Has that has that term continued? Do people still use it? Yeah, to, yeah, yeah. So to today, yeah. If, if I went to Ghana, if you were in Ghana today and you asked about item 13, for sure. Get a nice plate of uh, snacks or something? <laughs> yeah, or food. It's just a reference to food in general. So if you just, you know, 
like we're going to, to hang out at someone's place or we're going to a wedding. You're like, it's, well, a wedding, clearly there's going to be food. But if you're going to hang out at someone's and you just say, will there be item 13? They'll, not, they'll know what you mean by that. All right. Good, good to know. Um, what, maybe this is an obvious question, but, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, why, why do African food entrepreneurs or, or food visionaries lack the platform that uh, food leaders from other parts of the world have? Oh, yeah, that, that's, <laughs> why do they lack, why do they lack the platform? I think, and the representation, right? You think about the size of the continent, the variety and diversity of the food that we have. Um, I think one, it comes down to, a big part of it comes down to the stereotypes that people have about the continent as a whole. And one of my pet peeves, which we can discuss later, is just, the terminology of African food. So even though the tagline for my for my podcast is an African food podcast, that had to be wrangled out of me because I just did not like it. We did that ultimately for SEO reasons and marketing purposes. But I think just the connotation of Africa alone, I think conjures in people's minds like poverty and war and um, I don't know, refugee you know all just negative connotations generally speaking and so when when people think about africa they don't think about the richness um and variety of our foods because they see people dying of, of hunger or whatever and so they don't connect the culture to to good food plentiful food flavorful food um and then just in general too by the time you know an african immigrant comes here and chooses to to go into the food space they generally don't have the capital, the American, um, I don't know what the right word is, like sensibilities, I guess, just because they don't understand the landscape in terms of how do I market this in a way that is appealing to a wider audience. So a lot of these people will be serving their specific local communities versus thinking about how do I um, not change this to fit the Western or American taste, but how do I um, make myself accessible to to a wider audience, so they don't have the capital, to, you know, to put in the marketing budget. For example, a lot of these people, you know, I think about <laughs> in terms of the service and the hospitality specifically, don't have the um, the what's the right word here? Um, into like internet savviness, I guess, to go online and you know share what they're doing, and so that tends to keep what they are doing in local communities versus being being put out there. And then just, yeah, I think I mentioned that earlier, the connotation, like one of a guest I had a couple of weeks ago, um, or maybe three or four weeks ago, anyway, out of London was saying how, you know, when she first started her supper clubs, as they call them in, in, in England, or, you know, we would call them pop-ups here in, in the U.S., um, she she was doing Somali food, right? And when you think about Somalia, again, you think about poverty and the war and all of that stuff. And she said, you know, a patron had the gall <laughs> to ask if the food that was being served at the pop-up was clean. And so if in 2020 or, you know, 2019, you're being asked that question, even after there's a certain surge in interest in African food, West African food, if you still have people asking questions like that, there's there's a problem around perception for sure. That's that's a really kind of loaded question. Um, 
because when we think of about clean food, and this has actually been kind of the subject of controversy before with ethnic cuisines, um, in a like you know kind of actually being gentrified. Like a there was a, a Chinese uh, restaurant and it was being called, well, this is, this is clean Chinese food. This is clean eating. Uh, But I think what you're referring to is even a little more, um, uh, a little more concerning. It sounds like they're referring to actual, um, the actual cleanliness of the food that's being served. So um, I think that's really loaded, but I think you also made a great point about, yes, you know, in the past year or two, it, it, it feels like African cuisine is trendy and, you know, specifically beyond East African, because I think Ethiopian food has kind of had a, had, a, had its place um, here and popularity here. But, um, you know, we see like Fonio and, you know, we see a number of West African food products that are gaining popularity. Um, but I think you just made a great point about uh, it's kind of a little more competitive than other cultural cuisines because uh, generally people don't refer to Asian cuisine or European cuisine. They refer to um, Japanese or Chinese or French or Italian. And it, it just feels like it kind of makes it even that much more crowded within the African food space um, because we're not referring specifically to Ghanaian cuisine or um, you know, or West in, I'm oh, sorry. I'm, what was I, I was saying, uh, sorry. We're not referring specifically to um, Senegalese cuisine or Guinean cuisine. We're just calling it African food and African cuisine. Yeah, that, that grates me quite a bit. And, and um, I've had this debate with others, like in, in the, the general African, truly African food space about you know the back end so i think we progressed a little bit to making it regional now so that people have a sense and now we talk a little bit more about west african food or east african food or north african food um it's a balance between trying to help people identify the foods because again the education is not there people don't know so if i say i'm going to have nyamachoma today people are like what you know (laughs) or um, I'm going to have chakalaka, like, you know, what is that, you know? And so if I say South African or Southern African food, at least in, in, the, in the short, this short-term period and medium-term period, it gives people context. But we want to get to the point where I can say, um, you know, South African food or Eritrean food without having to, to go into depth. And again, I, I understand, like, the continent is huge. There's so many countries. People are not as familiar just because they are very removed from it. But at the very least, they are, you know, they are, uh, I would say five or ten like major countries that are represented consistently in the Western context that at the very minimum, people should have a sense of. If today in 2020, you're in the food world, especially in food media, and <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. You're in food media and you cannot distinguish between like, Senegalese food and Moroccan food, then, I mean, I'll give you a pass if, you know, you don't know Eritrean food or you don't know the food from Chad or Mali, but there's just certain basics at this point that I think people should should be aware of. People that yeah. should be aware of should be aware of. 
Yeah, absolutely. And for the most part, they aren't. Um, and I also wanted to sort of take that line of questioning one step further. I mean, it's, uh, it's no secret that the national borders on the continent are fairly recent and fairly arbitrary, or at the very least determined by colonial powers. Um, and that there's a huge amount of diversity within each sort of nation state as it exists today. And different ethnic groups, different people from different backgrounds will have different recipes. So I don't know, to what extent do you feel like uh, national, a, a system of national cuisines is important in, the, in talking about African food? Or, or should we be approaching it differently? Should we be thinking about cuisines from the continent as more specifically associated with certain ethnicities or tribal groups or, or just another system beyond nationality? I think ethnicity is probably the most um, appropriate way, for lack of a better term, to, to, do, to, you know, to refer to the food. Because when you think about phonio, for example, as Val mentioned earlier, it's not specifically um, Senegalese or Sierra Leonean. It's across the West African, a specific West African belt, right? And so, um, I don't know how to say this delicately. I think the country reference is used because there isn't that education yet or understanding yet, at least in the American context, of what that means. Yeah. And so, you know, someone like Chef Pierre has to say, you know, Guinea and Sierra Leone when he refers to Fonio, for example, just because when you when you he does talk about that that belt sometimes in in his in his speeches, but then, at least from my observation, when he talks about it, he tends to have a map in the back, and it, you know, so then you can see and reference. But I think in the short term, and then just back to what I was saying about you know, African food and, and why that is used more often than not. It's just because that's the point of reference that people have today. How do we move them forward? I think it's it starts with that regional um, conversation, right? So now, you know, I see a lot more now in articles and stuff, people say West African food. Um, so, yeah, I, I think the conversation towards regional foods is great, but ultimately the best way to reference it is through the different ethnic groups that you'll find on on the continent and and one of <laughs> i actually interviewed someone um in this past season uh, who was absolutely fantastic um and he, he based he's zimbabwean but based in south africa and is doing amazing work around um, educating people on our african foods using ice cream <laughs> as a tool so he does a lot of different um african fruits and flavors and spices um, and uses them in ice cream and uses that ice cream as a tool to educate people through events and whatnot. And one of the questions I asked him when he was on the podcast was to talk about Zimbabwean food in general. And he shot me down, like not in a bad way, but he shot me down and said, there's no such thing as Zimbabwean food. You can tell me about Shona food, which is a tribe, it's really a Southern African tribe. So they're not just found in Zimbabwe. Um, but that also got me thinking, right? But it, 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 it's tough. Like, I don't know. And I don't, I, the reason I keep coming back to the American context is not just because I think it's America is the end all be all. But one of the things that is important to me is creating a marketplace where people can earn like an economic, or in terms of economic well-being for farmers, producers, um, and even like, spice makers, uh, people who make sauces, etc., on the continent 
to be able to access markets in the West to improve their economic well-being. And so to do that, they need to be able to speak the language of the markets they're trying to access. And so it's a double-edged sword in that you're trying to, one, um, be authentic to who you are, <laughs> but, but two, in, you know, creating space for people to be able to experience your culture through your food. Because I think, I think once people experience food, and I'm sure you've, you know, you've had this conversation with several people, I think food is such a powerful medium to break down stereotypes and con misconceptions about peoples and peoples and places. And for me, I think, particularly for Africa, I think that that's, that's what's going to help do that. And so as people are trying to get, you know, their, their products into the American, European marketplaces, it's that how do they construct that narrative that helps people understand where they're coming from without um, losing themselves in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely challenging. I mean, it's challenging from, I mean, this, this is what I do for a living, right, is, is work with farmers to get them to uh, get their products to market here in the U.S. And it's challenging in every context for a producer, you know, whether they're a farmer or even a small company that's trying to figure this out. If they don't know their market, and and as you mentioned, their market doesn't know them, uh, it's very difficult to to figure out how to how to uh, how to sell something, how to how to market that product. Right. Um, so I, I don't know. What have you seen, or have you seen projects that that you think have been successful in that area, or um, how how do you recommend? Yeah, that you, yeah. That I think I, I I have um, I have. So I mean, I don't want to go. <laughs> Chef Pierre is an example that's used consistently over and over again, but I think he's done a wonderful job of creating that context. And so for him, I think, one, he frames Fonio around the concept of, of health first. And so thinking about people who are trying to eat, eat healthier, more like nutrients-dense foods, um, and then gluten-free, you know, people who have intolerance to gluten, for example, and then also ties the story back to um, what he's trying to do back at home in terms of helping the farmers there, the the women who have to do all the work when Fonio is harvested, uh, trying to create a, a marketplace for them in the U.S. So I think he crafts, he, he really truly threads this, connects all the dots that makes the Fonio story really compelling. So he's a good example. Um, yeah, and, and that's uh, Pierre Tiam and his company is Yolele Foods. Yes, Yolele Foods. And then they have um, Teranga, which is a, a cafe, I guess you'd call that that, up in, in Harlem. And then I think they're opening a, a space in Brooklyn too as well. Yeah. So he's a pretty good example. Um, um, I will, I used to last year, I said a couple all the time, so maybe I will not use her this time. Um, trying to think of somebody else. Um, the Ginjan brothers, too. I guess we're New York yeah. based, so let's talk New York. The Ginjan brothers are also a great example. Um, so there are two brothers from Sierra Leone who make this um, ginger drink. And they've done a great job in terms of branding and telling this, you know, their story through their product. And they also now have a coffee shop slash cafe um, up in Harlem where they not only sell their um, their ginger drinks but you know they do coffee hot chocolate and then and snacks and whatnot and they were also a group i had on the podcast and talking about their journey to get where they are and some of the stories they shared both online and offline about you know fundraising and some of the things that were told to them to their face 
about being an African CPG company, again, to me, like in 2018, 2019, 2020, to be able to hear that. I mean, I give kudos to them because, and everybody, I'm promoting them. <laughs> Go check them out. They're online. They're shipping their, their drinks um, anywhere in the continental U.S. Um, but to be, to be able to face that and still go on knowing you know they have a true north and so for that that's good for them i think that they're forging ahead in terms of in spite of <laughs> the challenges they face and so i hear the stories of these people that are doing amazing things that have shaped their narrative to towards the western gaze if you will but have still you know maintained their authenticity they still have issues around prejudice and discrimination and misconceptions about like African African food. So those two are great examples, I think. Um, just their their branding, their storytelling, um, it's, it's really great. They, they still face challenges around misconceptions and whatnot, but there are a couple of people that I'm, I'm proud to have associated with the African food, food brand, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah, we had uh, Raheem from Jinjin uh, yeah. on the podcast what was it, Valerie? Like probably a year ago now, at least. I think it was in February, like right, right at the yeah, end of the before times. Shows, it shows yeah. you how uh, how specific my understanding of time is these days. Right, <laughs> it was right before the you know the world shut down, and we were still recording in the studio. Um, so you know, I, I encourage people to uh, head head to our archives and check out our interview with Raheem Jallo. Um, for another perspective about, um, you know, someone who is is building from the ground up an enterprise with a focus on, um, you know, selling this drink that was based off of their childhood growing up in West Africa. So, yeah, let's take a quick break. Uh, Stick with us. We'll be back in two minutes. This episode is brought to you by Levo, the world's most intelligent at-home infuser. It's super easy to use to make infusions for cooking, candies, cosmetics, and herbal medicines. When the box showed up, I was excited to try it out as I've heard good things about the machine. It looks like a space-age coffee maker on the counter, and having it out makes me want to infuse everything. I've got plans for the hot peppers on my counter and the sage I picked from the garden before the first freeze last week, along with some other choice herbs and spices. I think everyone on my list is going to get infused oils this year. So far, I've used it for cannabis, basil, and orange peel infused oils and butter. The machine even has dry and activate functions for the highest potency and stability in your infusions, and you can connect through Wi-Fi to track your progress and record your recipes and share with the Levo community. Learn more at levooil.com. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L.com. And we're back. Our guest this week is Yoram Akwaku, uh, host of the Item 13 podcast here on Heritage Radio Network. Um, Yoram, you uh, took sort of a circuitous path to your, your current role. You started <laughs> off your career as an accountant. How did you, how did you make the switch? And, and what was it about food that, that brought you to this place? Um, good question. Uh, so, yes, I started out as an accountant. Um, so I moved to the U.S. at 18 or 19, I never remember, um, to, for college, um, studied accounting. Um, and I thought I was going to be a partner at the firm that I worked at. I loved my job coming out of school. Um, it was great. I learned a lot. It was very fast-paced. I liked that very much. Um, 
But towards the end of my time there uh, was when the recession hit. So 2007, 2000. No, no, I take that back. Yeah, 2007, 2008 was when I started my career. And then just the effects of of the recession started to, to sort of impact the work my team was doing. And so there were a lot of people laid off. And quote unquote, the, <laughs> they said the star team remained. So my team went from 20 to 5. I was one of five left standing. But that also meant the workload was just incredibly ridiculous. Um, I was working... I don't know how many hours a week traveling because my work involved a lot of travel um, and I just I just couldn't do it anymore. So um, I transitioned out of that, went to, went to work in industry for a little bit and then decided to get my MBA because I was seriously then thinking about moving back home but wanted to get my master's before doing that. Um, but then when I got my MBA, <laughs> the reality of student loans <laughs> hit me then and so decided to stay and but I knew then also that I did not want to work in the US. So post MBA, I got a job for a banking for a bank, for a big global bank. Um, and my job took me around the world. So for the last five years, or for the five years I was with a bank, I worked um, let's try to do this count. I worked in New York, Frankfurt, London, Dubai, Johannesburg, Toronto. Um, yeah, so those five, five or six cities, um, yeah. it was a great experience. Um, I think my job was made easier just by the anticipation of moving and living and working abroad. But it was to your question, it was in those five years of living and working abroad that the reality of the low representation of African food around the world hit me. So when I lived in Frankfurt in particular, um, Frankfurt was the most lonely place for me personally, in terms of all the places that I lived at. And I just won. It was very hard to find African ingredients to cook with. And so I would use basic stuff. Like there's stuff like you can do with peanut butter, for example, you can find in any store. So I would make peanut butter stew or whatever, but then it becomes repetitive, right? And so it was during my time in Frankfurt, really, that I started to think about um, that African food representation. One, just from my personal experience, and then two, with working with with clients and then just co-workers, there was the, the you know, you'd go to dinner and then people would ask, you know, what, what do you guys eat? What is African, again, which greeted me, what is African food? Um, and then I would talk specifically about Ghanaian food and what, what we would have back home. But then I realized that even for so, I shouldn't say, so, but yeah, like highly educated people, that should have somewhat of a worldview that they knew not, absolutely nothing <laughs> about African food. And so I started to create um, content around the food that I could make, at least in my kitchen. And this content really was just for my growing circle of friends that I had in Frankfurt and then as I moved around the world. Um, as I created content, I started to discover other people who were doing it and doing it much better than I was. So I sort of switched from focusing on, you know, sharing what I was doing in my kitchen to really highlighting the work that other people were doing. Um, I guess back then, like the Instagram algorithm wasn't as you know restrictive as it is now because that grew very, very quickly. 
And as a girl, and as I got to learn more from the entrepreneurs I was showcasing, I realized the need for things like, you know, I, I think I mentioned this at the top of the podcast, things like business skills that they didn't have, they didn't know how to position themselves in the marketplace, they didn't understand even just like basic um, social media skills in terms of putting their, their stuff out there. Um, and so I started to create programming and events that would support them in those spaces. So um, I did things like um, we did a hackathon, which was really cool back in Accra. That was probably my, my favorite thing ever. Um, we did a hackathon. Um, we've done food pitch competitions to help them get money. One, get money for their businesses, but also help them think about, you know, what is their what is their voice in terms of their brand voice, their personal voice, what is their story that they're trying to tell the world. Um, so those pitch competitions were great for that. We did um, in London did a couple of business workshops. So we had people come in and talk to them about PR for your business, marketing for your business. Um, what was the other one? There was the third one I can't remember off at the top of my head. And then it was also through this process then that the podcast was born because Again, I found that really just from my interaction with all these people, wanting to be able to share their stories on a platform that would get it outside of the rooms. Well, back in the day when we could hang out <laughs> in groups. Um, and I guess that is the plus side of when you think about it now, I'm, I'm switching gears now, but when you think about you know the world we're in today in terms of, of COVID, I think the explosion of virtual events and just having people being able to um, get their message, their stories, their brands, their products, services to an audience that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten to or even thought about, um, it is fantastic. And so, you know, we did we did this, this stuff in small groups of 30 people or 50 people, or maybe in the case of the hackathon, probably 150, 200 people. But now with growing interest and like people's comfort with virtual events, I could see that being a real plus for for some of these businesses, you know, if they are you kind of need to have to be strategic about it. But but yeah, I think I said more than you expected me to, but that is how No, it's a great story. Up, that is how I ended up in the food world and that's what I've been I've been doing since. Yeah. It's a it's a great story and I think uh we're not we won't get into it today, but if anybody is interested in learning more specifically about Ghanaian food or West African food more broadly, our guest last week uh, was Zoya Jonyo, who's the uh, British Ghanaian chef. Uh, and we talked quite a bit about West African and Ghanaian flavors and textures and, and sort of, I don't know, key points from the cuisine. So um, I, I encourage everybody to listen to last week's interview. Yeah, Zoe used to have a place in, in Brixton. I don't know if she mentioned that. Yeah. Um, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen, which is really cool, actually. It's a cool spot. Yeah. In some container, um, uh, container yard in, in, in Brixton and London. Cool. Yeah, I, I mean, I I do think there has been a, a little bit more of a, a awareness in the U.S. or in the non-African world about African cuisine, or I should say, an increased awareness over the last what ten years, maybe. And and I think social media plays a big role in that. I mean, not I mean Nigeria being the the population powerhouse of the continent, right. <laughs> uh, with with huge uh, huge numbers of people on social media and talking about everything, including food. Um, I guess my my question is, how do you? What are some of the ways that you, the key ways that you've seen these 
perceptions of African foods change recently? And, and where do you think that's going? What's, what's next for the, the Western perception of African foods? The Western perception of African foods. So that's, that's a really good question. Um, I think for me, and I, not to go back to Shapir again, but I think it's the positioning, right? So I think each each business, um, each entrepreneur has to think about how do I want to position myself with this rising tide? And so I think you need to pick, you need to think about what your strengths are because there's different ways to approach it. I think there's the, the health aspect of it, which I think is really important, especially now as people think, more and more people think about um, nutrition, food, food, you know, food as medicine, as they call it. Um, as a growing wave, um, Ethiopian food in particular, as you know, Val mentioned earlier, has been popular always. But I think the option that it gives for vegan, vegetarian people has also helped sort of with its popularity. And so, thinking about where you can fit in that space, when I talk to entrepreneurs, I, I you know, I, I tell them to focus on um, things like the health benefits, things like flavor. I think even spiciness, because I think there's also a misconception. <laughs> that uh, especially West African food can be very spicy. And so the Western palate is not um, as uh, inclined to try it because of you know that misconception. But again, back to this idea of um, tribe versus country, even versus region, um, even within Ghana, when I think about our foods, they're not necessarily spicy to the point of like, I'm going to fall over and die here. It's really a matter of taste. So we have specific spices that, you know, we'll use for different types of foods, but it really comes down to the family unit and how, how and how, why people, you know, grew up a certain way or chose to eat a certain way because their grandma did it this way. And so that's why they eat it. But I wouldn't put a general broad stroke that our food is spicy. And so it's, to answer your question, I think it's really about how we position ourselves. So I think if we focus on the health aspects of our food, like a lot of our foods, especially if I focus on West African food in particular, a lot of it is naturally vegan, naturally gluten-free, um, complex carbohydrates. So if you're thinking about eating, eating better, but also, you know, as the new year is coming around and people will start to make resolutions, that will break by February, at least if you're trying to eat healthy food and you focus on West African foods, for example, that you can have without worrying about, you know, is this going to be bland because it's it's kale or whatever. You can have plantains, you can have um, tomato-based, peanut-based stews, um, or if you're not allergic, obviously. But there's different, there's different ways and dishes and spices and flavors that you can use with our foods that you can have that's healthy that's good for you that you don't have to compromise on flavor so that that for me is the big focus because there's a lot of push in the general food space around um plant forward like you know food that's good for you and i think if people focus if our entrepreneurs and businesses focus on that that then in terms of fitting into the western marketplace that that could be a winning could be a winning play because i had a guest i had a guest uh 
way back, like I think season one of season two, who said, you know, she was trying to lose weight for a bunch of different reasons. And, you know, she had gone down the path of, you know, she's going to have minestrone soup and she'd been giving all of this stuff. And then she decided she, you know, she spoke to her mom and her mom was like, you should just eat her Ghanaian food, you know, just, you know, mind your portions and all of that. And she lost so much weight within a short period of time, just eating stuff that she loved. Right. So like she had plantain, she had yam, she had fufu, she had everything that, you know, she didn't feel like she was restricting herself in any way. So she felt good. Her food tasted good. Um, so her story always sticks with me when I think about, you know, a lot of people that are trying to combat chronic diseases um, through, through diet. I think about the role that African food can play, can play in that space for sure. And I, I mean, maybe this has been uh, over, over, over told, but uh, there's also obviously strong connections between Southern food in the U.S. and uh, and African ingredients and techniques. Um, do you think that helps? Does that give Americans a context or, or at least sort of um, familiar touch points, or, or should it be a new, a different conversation entirely? No, no, I, I think it does. Um, I'm not sure how much it does for. I think it, in my experience, I should say, let me caveat this. In my experience, I think it does for Black Americans in particular who are looking for ways to reconnect to the continent. So um, I'm finding that with my podcast, at least and in the space that I'm in, I'm finding, to my surprise, I didn't realize that this was a thing. Like when I created the podcast, when I said my platform, it really was for people on the continent and in the diaspora to sort of reconnect with with our food, our culture, gain an appreciation for it, and then also to create a platform for those in the space, you know, to have a voice for the work that they are doing. What I've found over the years, though, is that there has been an increasing interest from the African-American, um, a lot of African-American women in particular, I don't, I don't know why it's women specifically, who are interested in connecting back to their roots um, I don't know if it's as a consequence of what's going on in the country and like really thinking about, you know, where else can I call home? And so thinking about their African roots and ancestry and then discovering the work that we're doing and saying, I want to learn more about, you know, African food. And I know I see the connection between um, West African food, for example, and stuff in the South. Um, so I, I see that connection more with, with Black American people. And we had um, a guest, a Liberian guest, uh, at the beginning of season four, who talked about the connection between, like, so you know, Liberia has, has a connection with um, the civil rights movement in that it was the first, you know, there's a bunch of freed slaves that essentially moved over to Liberia, formed, formed a country, and blah, blah, blah. And so that particular episode was very, very popular, especially for that group of my audience, because it gave a clear connection to them to like why why and how they're connected. And some of the foods that uh, Dominique, who was our guest, described completely, like Liberian foods are, you know, clear lines to, to Southern American food. And you could see the connections, the differences and the similarities. So I've seen that more with, with you know, African-American, Black American populations. I Not necessarily, at least in my experience anyway, like the wider American audience. Wider or or whiter, <laughs> or both. <laughs> Let's leave that here. Yeah, right, <laughs> <That's> interpretation. 
on that note, um, <laughs> should we do some rapid fire? I'm yeah, let's sure. do it. Um, all right, I'll start. Um, what? Oh, I kind of want to make this good. Jeez. What is an ingredient that, because you mentioned, you know, when you were in Frankfurt, you had a hard time finding a lot of mm-hmm. ingredients that you use in your cooking. Uh, what is like your one can't live without ingredient that you can't find at like a typical supermarket here? Um, I would say that's a good, so this is rapid fast. I will get into <laughs> plantains, I will say, which is, it's, it will be surprising to you because you're in New York, but plantains. That is surprising. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's, it will, it will surprise you because it's, yeah, <laughs> this is rapid fire, so I, I wouldn't get into it, but plantain is it's one surprising right, now, that I can't get. Get into it a little bit. Now, now I'm curious. <laughs> no, it, one, it depends on which part of the country you are in, right? And then two, even living in Johannesburg, like plantain, and again, this was a learning experience for me. I lived in Johannesburg for two years. It was so difficult to find plantains. Like I would have to call around. It would be sporadic depending on, you know, which part of the city, and then I would have to drive out to, to find it because plantains are not a thing of Southern Africa. And so this is, again, the thing about, like, conceptions about African food and, you know, we say plantain is African. No, it's not. It's unique to parts of Western Africa and then even East Africa to an extent. But then they have bananas versus plantains. It's, it's this whole thing, <laughs> right? And so, which, but for me, plantain is a staple. Like, it's, it's almost like salt and pepper. I have to have it in my, you know, in my rotation of things I'm going to cook with. Um, but it's, it's eluded me in a lot of places, surprisingly. Um, what is your uh, desert island kitchen tool? What do, you, what do you take with you if you can only take one thing? Oh, wow. Um, I will say, and this you have to look up. <laughs> I will say... Um, it's, it's called Asanka. It's a Ghanaian. Uh, it's a multi-purpose Ghanaian kitchen tool. <laughs> so it looks like it's an earthen. It's, it's made out of clay. It's an earthenware bowl. It's, it's made out of clay. It's, you know, put it in an oven, comes out. It looks black, but, but um, it has all these ridges within it. So you can use it to grind stuff. You can use it as a bowl to eat within um, it, it, because you, you, you know, you grind spices and whatnot. So if I find herbs on the, on the island or whatever, I can grind that up, you know, put a little seawater into it and make a little bit of something. And then I have a bowl to eat out of. Um, so I, I, love the, I love the practicality. <laughs> yeah. Um, where can our listeners uh, find your podcast, find your work more broadly, follow you on social media? Um, good question. So I'm here on Heritage Radio Network. So if you search for Item 13 Podcast um, on Heritage Radio, you'll find us on Instagram, which is where I'm most active with the podcast. I have um, our Instagram account is Item 13 Podcast. Um, and then you'll see a link to other stuff that we are doing and working on there. So item 13 podcast is, is uh, the best way. Google at item 13 podcast across social media platforms and then on Heritage here on Heritage Radio. Awesome. It was so lovely having you. Um, and 
you guys, you, as always, you can find us at Y Food Podcast on social, and you can also shoot us an email. Um, you can find me on social at Foodie in New York, and you can find me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And also, it is Ethan's birthday today. Oh, no. Ooh, so happy funny, birthday! <laughs> happy birthday, Ethan! I know he doesn't like to always share awesome <laughs> things that he's up to, but oh, um. Right. <laughs> Is your is anyone making you a cake today, Ethan? Uh, my wife got me my favorite cake from a little local bakery near us in Queens, which is it's a it's an Italian bakery, but in a, a predominantly Hispanic neighborhood, and so they do a layer of cheesecake and a layer of flan on top of the cheesecake, Ooh. and it is uh, spectacular. That Letting sounds fine. <laughs> awesome. All right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Send us a piece virtually, okay? Yeah, I will. Thanks to uh, our amazing sound engineer, Amanda Wong. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, which is called Blind. And most of all, Yorm, thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing your expertise and, and experience with us and with our listeners. Thank you. This is great. Talk to you all next week. Okay, bye. Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage.